You're listening to Just One of the Guys, welcoming you to a new year and a new era for Green Lantern. One of these days, the ground will drop out from beneath your feet. One of these days, your heart will stop and play its final episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from the cover date June 1990 until the cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two characters who are going to be very integral in the next couple of issues. In fact, we may even see one of the characters that we haven't seen in an issue today. You probably won't know it, but we'll see him rather less. Hint, it's not Guy Gardner, because we're definitely going to see Guy Gardner in issue 17 of his book, newly titled Guy Gardner Warrior. And, you know, whatever we have an epic title change like Warrior, we've got to have an epic costume change as well. Well, maybe epic is the wrong word to be using here, but we'll have a costume change for Guy as well. Plus, he'll be dealing with some difficult family issues. Ever since the events in Yesterday's Sins, where he was captured by aliens and made to relive his early life, Guy's had some, well, some thinking to do, and he's trying to make some change in his life. And the first change that he wants to try and do is reconcile with his father, see if he can get back in touch with him and make amends with him. We'll see how that works out. Probably not for the best. We'll also see in Green Lantern how Hal reconciles with his father. What, you say? His father is dead? Oh, no, no, no. Hal has decided to, well, forego the whole thing about using the ring for his own personal interest, and he decides to bring the entirety of Coast City back, including his father, 
his mother, and a long-lost love of his. Needless to say, this doesn't bode well for Hal, and it really tends to irk the uh, Guardians of the Universe. Hal has a few choice words to say to the Guardians about their decision to let him basically rewrite history. And let's just say it leads him down a very dark and tragic path. One path that will eventually lead us to a big change coming up in the Green Lantern titles. So, I hope you guys are ready for some issues dealing with some uh, daddy problems. Because this time out, both Guy and Hal have them. But before we get into the issues, let's play a few promos for a couple of great podcasts that I'd love you to listen to. And when we get back, we'll start our coverage of Green Lantern number 48. Mr. Scott. Shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain? Violate the treaty, Captain. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. What are you scratching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com The Hulk on Podcasts Hulk like podcasts Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash The Hulk on Peter David Hulk like to read Peter David comics Hulk have problem making words Hulk Write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on... Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. 
Hey folks, in order to appease the Rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. And we're back. But before we get into Green Lantern number 48, let's go ahead and check the Just One of the Guys email bag, see what kind of wonderful letters you wonderful listeners have written on this wonderful post-Christmas day. Post-New Year's, even. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) Our first email comes from the awesome podcaster and host of his own website, Being Carter Hall, a Hawkman blog, and Elchicone's Comic Bunker, as well as the podcast Earth Destruction Directive, and the podcast The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, both of which you can find on the Two True Freaks website. Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke writes in with the title Retro GL Toys and More. Uh, It starts out, Sean, I was poking around on Big Bad Toy Store and thought you might get a kick out of these GL-related toys. The Retro Guy and Kyle look really great. And he gives a couple of links. Uh, if you go check out BigBadToyStore.com, triple W, obviously, you can probably get to these links. I'm not going to read them out because they've got a lot of letters and symbols and numbers in them. So, But just to say, there are a couple of Mego-style toys, one of them who's, very guy, who's Guy Gardner and one of them who's Kyle Rayner, and they both look really good. If you were a child of the 70s and you remember the Mego dolls, or even if you're a collector now... You may remember the Miko dolls. These are kind of coming back into style, the retro-type dolls, and there's a really good sculpt of them. He also says, uh, plus he's got an image of Evil Star, Goldface, and Kyle on their JLU form. And I had completely forgotten until um, Luke reminded me that Evil Star actually was a character in the uh, JLU, as well as Goldface. So... It's kind of neat that these characters, and they, they definitely look at the style of the uh, Bruce Tim Paul Dini, JLU-type animation. Really good-looking stuff. Go to Big Bad Toy Store and check them out if you want. Uh, they're pretty cool. And uh, Luke finishes up saying, enjoy. Hope you and your family had a great Christmas, Luke. Well, thanks, Luke. I hope you guys had a great Christmas as well. Uh, thanks for writing in. I really appreciate those links. Uh, Christmas money, I may have to be... Spend a little bit of that, because those are pretty cool Kyle toys. As well as the guy ones as well. Our next letter comes from the awesome podcaster, Mr. Michael Bradley, who recently made an appearance on this show. He's the host of the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which you can listen to over at greatcrypton.com. He's also the co-host of Green Lantern's Light, and he also podcasts, well, doesn't podcast, he also has a blog uh, dedicated to the writers of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, called uh, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers. Definitely an interesting blog. Go check it out. He's 
covering all the stuff about Siegel and Schuster. And if you only think of Siegel and Schuster as the creators of Superman, you're doing yourself a disservice because they've done a lot of characters, some of which are really pretty famous, and you probably had no idea that they were part of creating. Definitely go check it out. But Michael writes in with the title, My Appearance. He says, I finished listening to the episode on the drive home from work tonight. We talked quite a while. It didn't seem that long when we were on Skype. Yeah, usually when you're talking to me on Skype, uh, it doesn't seem like long because you tend to drown out everything I'm saying in, in favor of, you know, keeping your own sanity. <laughs> but he can use on, I plug the show on greatcrypton.com and greenlanternslight.com and my own Facebook wall. Not that I have hordes of followers, but hopefully it'll send some more listeners your way. Well, thanks, Michael. I, I wrote back to Michael saying that I'm glad to have all the listeners I do, but I'm kind of doing this just for fun. And if people decide to listen to this, wonderful. I really appreciate them doing it. But if I'm the only person who's listening to it, that's fine as well. Like I've said before, that I do this podcast and that I get a couple of people or hundreds of people or even, you know, who knows how many people listening to it. I'm just grateful for it. This is this has really been fun being able to reconnect with these comics and get to meet people like yourself, Michael, and Luke Jacanetti and the people at Two True Freaks and all these people. It's just been amazing. Uh, <laughs> stop gushing now. <clears throat> Go back to the uh letter it says anyway i just wanted to say thanks again for having me on i hope i can come on podcast with you again down the road sometime both times have been great fun have a good new year michael well again michael it's a little late but i hope you have a good new year or had a good new year as well and definitely i have plans to have you back on the show so we'll be chatting again hopefully soon but that does it for email so let's go ahead and close up the email bag, and we'll get started with Green Lantern number 48. Green Lantern number 48 was cover dated January 1994, with a release date on November 23, 1993. The cover price was $1.50 US, $1.95 Canada, and 70 p UK. The title was Emerald Twilight Part 1, The Past. Writer this time out was Bron Mars, penciler was Bill Willingham, anchors were Romeo Tangal and Robert Campanella, Letterer was Albert Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, assistant editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. Kneeling on the 12-mile hole that once cradled Coast City, Green Lantern Hal Jordan ponders the loss of his home, his friends, and his family. He looks at the ring, a gift and a burden given to him by a man from the stars, a ring that can do amazing things, limited only by the bearer's willpower. With such an item, one could do anything if they wanted to badly enough. With that, Hal creates a dome of energy over the remains of the once great city, and out from the green energy walks Hal's father, Martin. He asks his son about his broken arm, and Hal replies that it's nothing. The two start a discussion about their relationship, and how Martin always favored Jack and Jim over him. Martin counters, saying that his other sons had real accomplishments. But Hal points out that he's Green Lantern, an actual superhero, and he's accomplished a lot. Martin asks Hal if that superheroism helped the people of Coast City. And with that, Martin walks away, and Hal is forced to witness his father's death for a second time. 
crestfallen, Hal drops to his knees, only to have the hand of his mother come to rest on his shoulder. Hal asks how she could live with the lost, and she replies that she just left it behind and remembered the good times. Telling Hal to keep the good memories, Hal's mother fades from existence as well. But this isn't enough for Hal, and he summons all of his will to recreate the entirety of Coast City, down to the last detail, down to the last life. Reveling in his near-godlike power, Hal hears a familiar voice. It's the resurrected construct of his first girlfriend, Jennifer. The two talk, and Hal thanks Jennifer for being there for him, after his father died in the crash. He, gr- he regrets not spending more of his life with her, and Jennifer says she has no regrets. She had moved on, met a man, and settled in Coast City. Hal awkwardly apologizes, but Jennifer says he has nothing to apologize for. In fact, she's happy that he has created all of this, so that they can live again. The two finally reach the Jordan home, and Jennifer gives Hal a tender kiss goodbye. Hal enters his home and sits down to talk to his dad. Martin says that everyone appreciates the resurrection of Coast City, and that he has something to tell Hal as well. But before he can say what Hal needs to hear, the entire construct fades away as the charge from the ring fades out. Enraged, Hal screams that this isn't fair, to which the image of a guardian replies that fairness does not matter. Hal has violated the guardian's most sacred canon, using the ring for personal gain. Hal says that what he did was due to personal loss, but the Guardian is not budging on his stance. Hal then snaps and punches the construct in the face, absorbing the energy of the projection. With a menacing grin, Hal says that he'll be returning to Oa like the Guardians asked, but they aren't going to like it when he gets there. And as Hal streaks off to the night sky, retreated to a shot of a young couple who witnessed a strange, falling star blazing through the night. What we have here is a really deep and psychological issue. The tone has definitely changed from what we saw in last issue, and I think that's probably pretty much attributed to the fact that they brought in Ron Morris as a writer. Morris is a really good and capable writer. I've enjoyed a lot of his stuff, and I enjoy his stuff that he's going to be doing later in the series. But this is definitely a lot different than what was set out in the issue before. Hal seems to be dealing with the grief a lot more. In issue 47, he seemed to be pretty much over it. Uh, So, tonally, I guess it was probably good at the time that they had... uh, um, one month in between the publishing of issue 47 and 48, so people could maybe get the idea that Hal was okay with this out of his mind and come back to see that Hal really is broken up about this. The one thing about this issue, Hal's creating constructs of all the people in Coast City. So all of these constructs aren't actually resurrected people. They're just Hal's memories or what Hal would actually like to see happen. And that's kind of telling. It it shows that Hal really has some issues that he has to work through, and especially issues with his father. It also kind of makes you think that Hal might be losing it a bit. He's, I mean, 
I think everyone has internal monologues where they think things out and uh, may have not really separate personalities, but work through things in their head by going back and forth and trying to figure out what would work best. Hal is projecting these with the ring. He's making an attempt to literally bring people back. This is what he wants to do. That's something he can't. And he's got to realize that he can't do that, or it's just going to be problems for Hal. In fact, the only people in this book, well, technically the only person in this book, is Hal. Even the Guardian, who comes by to tell Hal that he can't do this, is a construct image of the Guardian. So, Hal, essentially, throughout this entire book, is all alone. Very deep, very kind of dark, and very psychological issue. Really enjoy it. But, let's go ahead and go on to notes. Um, We'll start with the cover, which is a really good look of an anguished Hal. It looks like he's still right after the issue 46, where he's got his hand in the brace. Doesn't look like he has his leg in the brace, though, but it's a really nice image of an anguished howl kneeling on the ground with his hand held to the sky and his his hand in a sort of, not really clenched, but grasping way, and the green energy is emanating from his hand, creating all the buildings and constructs around him. I really am liking Bill Willingham's art. Uh, He does a really good job of drawing Hal, and also the thing I like is he draws the uniform to actually look like actual clothes. It's not like just a skin-tight suit. It looks like an actual piece of clothing. There's folds to it and everything. So I I like that every once in a while in uh, character design for these comics. Page one, again, really nice splash page with uh, Hal kneeling in the middle of the canyon where Coast City used to be. And he's still got his uh, arm in a sling, which is a nice piece of continuity. But underneath him, you see this buried doll in the rubble. And it is perhaps... Not perhaps. It is the creepiest doll I think I've ever seen in any type of comic ever. It looks like it might be a Cabbage Patch doll, but it's got, like, honey boo-boo lips, and its hand is this sort of weird, stumpy, thalidomide, three-fingered thing. It's It looks like it's going to swallow my soul. And <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to say this during a sort of uh, tragic episode, but yeah, that's creepy as all get out. Moving ahead to pages 11 and 12, we've got this gorgeous two-page splash where Hal recreates Coast City. And you can tell he's recreating it out of the sort of sense of nostalgia that he has for the city. What we see are images of kids playing hopscotch, uh, the police trying to get a cat out of a tree, and the local um, fountain. I guess that'd be the uh, local pharmacy or the drugstore. And outside, you've got this little girl kissing this kid who conspicuously has a haircut much like Guy Gardner, so maybe Hal's thinking about putting Guy Gardner in this uh, thing. You never know. But it's really great artwork, really detailed. I like this, but it also goes to show that Hal is trying to get this idyllic memory of Coast City and to put it here, and maybe his memory's faulty, and maybe this is just sort of wish fulfillment on his part. 
Well, obviously, it's wish fulfillment on his part. Page 13. Now, they've done this before in how being crucified in the uh, issues with Adam Strange. And they've done a lot in the Superman, uh, well, especially in the Superman movies, these sort of Christ images here. But this one, this one I think is undeniably a Christ image. You've got Hal, not with his hands outstretched sort of in the crucifixion pose, but more in a welcoming pose, the sort of, uh, oh, I can't remember what you'd call the Da Vinci type pose that they put on the Voyager thing. But he's got his hands, palms up, outfaced. He's looking down at the people. And in the background, there's this, oddly enough, big emerald light in the shape of a cross. So some really heavy crucifixion or Christ imagery here, which obviously is pointing to the fact that Hal is thinking that he might be nearly godlike if he wanted to be. And it kind of plays in with the dialogue that I have on these pages. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Starting on page 11, it goes, It would be tempting, wouldn't it? All it would take, really, is the will. Oh, certainly every last vestige of willpower that could be summoned. But it would be tempting. Think of it. The power to resurrect which no longer exists. Or create that which no only exists in the mind's eye. All of it perfect, in every detail. The power to make the dead live again to redress any wrong, to rewrite history with a happy ending. The power to be God. And I think with that last line, we realize how has crossed from being just a simple hero wanting to do good to maybe a bit more megalomaniacal character. It's, it's sad to see the sort of change in him. Page 17, panels 4 and 6, as Martin, Hal's father, is about to tell him how proud he is of him, he fades from existence because the power is gone from Hal's ring. And it again shows that all of this is just wish fulfillment on Hal's part. This is all what Hal wants to happen, and he feels that if he had enough power, he could actually make this happen which kind of drives him into the next issue. And then on page 20, panel 1, here's a little hat tip to J. David Weeder, who got this phrase stuck in my head. Hal Jordan punches dirty guardians in the face! Yeah, in order to uh, get some more power back from for his ring, Hal decides to punch the construct, the guardian, in the face and basically absorb all the power. We've had times in the past where Hal has defied the authority of the Guardians, who's argued with them, who's actually called them out, but this seems a bit different. Um, punching the Guardian in the face, even though it's the Construct Guardian, might be a bit of crossing the line. And then on the same page, panel 3, this is a really good shot of Hal, and he's got this sort of... He's got his ring in his, uh, in his right hand, and the energy is glowing from it, and it's backlighting his face... And he's just got this hideous, evil sort of grin on his face. If he hasn't completely turned, he's definitely embracing the idea of him having this ultimate power. So we're going to see over the next couple of issues how descending more and more into this and actually enjoying, in some aspects, the uh, embrace of power that he has. 
Then finally on page 22, panel 2, we get an images, image of these uh, this couple uh, sitting just on the beach uh, watching the shooting star go by, an odd green shooting star that's going up, and, you know, we're not really... We really don't have any knowledge who these people are. I mean, it's a really nice panel. The the guy is uh, in his shorts and shirtless, and the girl's in a sort of bikini top with the straps off, so she's pretty hot. Um, um, I have no idea who they are, though. Uh, um, they don't give them names either, so I'm just going to call them, uh, uh, what, I'll pick some Hottie McCott pants and a man of Frigidaire. What? Anyhow, that finishes up our coverage of Green Lantern number 48. Let's go ahead and take a break, plug in some promos here, and as soon as I get back, we'll get into our coverage of Guy Gardner number 17. Stay tuned. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's GeekCast, coming January 1st, 2013, to www.charliesgeekcast.com. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hey, Michael! Yeah? We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one! Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved! We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do, we still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode, still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? And we're back. And if you guys are listening to Hey Kids Comics, and you should be because it's awesome, it's moved to the Two True Freaks website. So if you want to get your Hey Kids Comics fix, you need to change your feed and go to twotruefreaks.lipson.com to download your episodes of Hey Kids Comics. Also, while you're there, make sure you listen to the rest of the shows on the Two True Freaks feed. Star Wars, Star Trek, Comics, Walking Dead... The Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, Earth Destruction Directive, Hope Fall Trades. They've got everything and anything that you want over the Two True Freak site. I'm probably plugging them because they got me into podcasting and they also occasionally let me come on their show and talk about stuff. So definitely head over to Two True Freaks. But enough plugging for other shows. Let's go ahead and plug along and get to our issue of Guy Gardner. Guy Gardner 17 this time out was renamed Guy Gardner Warrior, so it's going to be Guy Gardner Warrior number 17, and it had a cover date of February 1994, with a release date of January 4, 1994. The cover price was $1.50 US, $1.95 Canada, and 70 p UK. Title was Warrior Road. 
The writer was Chuck Dixon. Penciler this time was Mitch Bird. Inkers were Dennis Kramer and Dan Davis. Colorist was Stuart Shaffitz. Edit- or letterer was Albert Guzman. Assistant editor was Eddie Braganza. And editor was Kevin Dooley. Flying over the shipyards of Baltimore, Guy Gardner thinks back to the tough fights he had in life. Butt-ugly aliens, power-hungry nutjobs, Lobo... All of them were walks in the park compared to the challenge he was going to have to face now. Landing in front of the terrace departments, Guy steals himself for the terror behind the front door. The horror that is... Guy's mother? Walking in, Guy tells his mom that he needs to talk. She deflects the conversation and offers to feed her long-lost son. As Peggy Gardner whips up an omelette with American cheese, just the way Guy liked it, Guy says that he's been running from his dad for far too long and that he really needs to talk with him and work things out. Peggy says that if Guy wants to talk, Raleigh is three, box, three blocks south and one block over. The location of Fine Lawn Memorial. It seems that Raleigh Gardner died right after Mace committed suicide. Right after Guy left. And with that, Guy realizes that his challenge is only going to be tougher than he ever thought. In a secret quorum airplane flying above the East Coast... Militia is furious that he hasn't been able to take down Guy Gardner. The Unseen Quorum says that he he was last seen in New York City, but attacking them there would be unwise due to the Justice League being close at hand. Militia scoffs at the threat and demands that Gardner is found. The Quorum lays down backstory about Militia's missions that took out enemies that that the superhero community wouldn't, but they warn that Guy Gardner might be the armored hero's biggest threat. Militia says to bring it on and demands that the quorum find him. Back at the Gardner home, Guy is looking through stuff in his old room. His mom's kept it exactly as he left it, partially out of sentiment, partially out of denial. Scanning old pictures, Guy thinks about what this place meant to his family. For Raleigh, it was a burden. For Peggy, a chore. For Mace, it was a shrine. But for Guy, well, Guy can't remember one happy memory here. And he thinks that maybe this is why his clone turned out so bad. Turned out to be a murderer. Guy then heads down to watch some TV with his mom. The two sit staring at the mindless program on the screen, mere inches away, but miles apart. Growing tired of the feeling of awkwardness, Guy excuses himself, telling Peggy that he doesn't know when he'll be back. Putting on his coat, Guy flies skyward, lamenting the fact that he will never be able to resolve the issues he had with his dad. Meanwhile, in the quorum plane, Guy's energy signal has been spotted over Baltimore, and Militia is ready to do some hunting. He dons his extreme 90s jetpack and grabs his ultra-badass gun, and prepares to smack Guy like the red-headed stepchild he is. At the same time, Guy is taking in the Washington, D.C. mall at night. Standing in front of the reflecting pool, Guy feels that he needs to get control of his life and make a change. He didn't expect the change, however, it would be from the heavily armored militia crashing into the pool and blasting Guy with his gun. Not wanting to see Washington's greatest monuments taken down, Guy heads skyward to engage in some aerial fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. Guy blasts the multicolored menace only to have his shot deflected and the energy blast hit nearby buildings. Realizing that the jetpack juggernaut thinks that he's Guy's evil clone, Guy decides to try and minimize collateral damage and head out of town. 
We get a brief interlude of Wonder Woman, Ice, and Fire discussing Tora's relationship with Guy, and then it's back to the McFightenstein. Guy is streaking down I-95, heading away from the capital, when he hears the oh-too-familiar alien phrase, meaning that his ring has run out of power. Guy bounces off a few cars and rolls out of the way of an oncoming RV, all the while waiting for his opponent to come and mow him down. But, since Militia's jetpack was obviously made in Korea by Hyundai, it gives out as well, sending the B-list baddie tumbling down the highway, finally implanting on the grill of a passing semi. Channeling his innermost Schwarzenegger, Militia cries, I'll be back, as Guy ponders just who the heck had such a mad on for him. Cut to the JLI embassy, where Ted Cord is checking out Guy's new look. The Blue Beetle says that the look will take some getting used to, but that it suits Guy. However, he wonders what the W on his chest stands for. Guy says he's never used anything but his name before, but now it's time for a change. From now on, you will call him... Warrior. Ooh, uh, we definitely have a big change in store for the Guy Gardner book. Guy is definitely being put in the position of the 1990s extreme anti-hero, as sort of DC's answer to the image books that were putting put out the time. I'm really enjoying uh, Bird's art here. It's really different from the previous state and stuff, uh, but after a while I got used to it. Unfortunately, with Kramer inking him instead of uh, Dan Davis, it's not the best stuff. When Davis comes on as full-time inker, uh, things tend to get better. I've never really seen any real input from people on the internet about what they think about Davis's artwork. I enjoy it to an extent. It's very cartoony, and the characters have a really good look. Davis, I think, or I'm sorry, Davis Bird does a really good job of uh, drawing his female characters, and I'll comment on that a lot during this, uh, during the, his run. But his art style may be hit or miss for you. It's a very stylized look. Uh, the characters are very physically fit. Uh, sometimes they're a bit over-muscled, but it's not... It's not in the really extreme life field way. There's a different aesthetic to it that actually works for me in this book. So hopefully I'll be able to talk to some people. And uh, if you uh, would like to write in and let me know how you feel about the artwork, please do, because I'd, I'd like to know. But let's go ahead and head on to the notes. We'll start with the cover, which is a uh, guy in his new warrior uniform with his brand new spiky haircut rather than the pole cut as well. Uh, against a sort of flaming orange and yellow background. It's a very dynamic, very 90s cover. And you know how it's a 90s cover? Well, let me go through the 90s tropes checklist and see what we've got. We've got the spiky buzz cut, check. A leather jacket with big shoulder pads, check. Black t-shirt with the hero symbol on it, check. Spiky fingerless gloves, check. Leather assless chaps, check. Good. I think we've got pretty much all the 90s tropes covered. Page 2, panels 3 and 4. Um, This is where I kind of complain about the artwork a bit. It's not that I think uh, Bird's doing a bad job of it, because he's... Uh, the artwork is decent. They've got the character down, and I think it's just uh, Kramer's inking, maybe. It looks a bit scratchy in places. There's a lot of... Uh, 
extra line work that just kind of takes away, I think, from the pencils. Uh, um, just not my favorite artwork here on these couple of pages. Page 3, panel 5, uh, we get the reveal that Raleigh died soon after Guy left. Uh, which is going to be a big uh, point of contention for Guy, because after the Yesterday is Sin storyline, what Guy really wanted to do was try and resolve some issues he had with his father. In order to try and move on with his life, this was how he was going to effectively change. The first thing he was going to do was interact with his father and try and talk things out. The fact that his dad died is going to be a big problem, going to be a big problem with the... Guy's psyche, that he's going to have a part of his past that he's not going to be able to resolve or deal with, and I really wonder how this is going to affect him throughout the rest of the book. It'll be interesting to see how this development changes Guy. Page 4, panel 4, we get a statement that this mysterious organization, the Quorum, which I think will probably be relegated primarily to the Guy Gardner book, has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on militia. Now, I can only assume from his really cybernetic, muscular legs that he's probably a cyborg of some sort. Maybe uh, maybe they've enhanced his body with bionics or something like that, because he does look a bit more physically muscular than a normal person. So maybe he's the Guy Gardner Universe version of the sort of evil $6 million man. Page 6, panel 5. As Guy's looking through his room, he comes across a picture of Raleigh Mace and himself in a jovial embrace. This is kind of weird, because Guy tends to focus on all the negative things in his early life, so maybe there actually was a time when Guy's father wasn't really the sort of <sighs> drunken, abusive uh, person that Guy thought him to be. Uh, perhaps Guy's memories are blocking all the good times, which could uh, point to the fact that Guy's attitude might be uh, based on this. He's only thinking about the uh, negative parts of his life, which is essentially enhancing his sort of negative attitude toward the world. Page 7, normally I'd complain about this because it's just a reuse of the same panel six separate times as Guy and his mom sit watching TV, watching some mindless show that really neither of them could really care about. It's just, uh, it's setting the scene that Guy is very distant from his parents and that his parents really didn't get Guy. and It's... It's nice artwork, repeated, but I think the dialogue does it best. And I'll see if I can uh, deliver it here. Guy's mom says, was dinner all right, Guy? Guy says, just great, Mom. You got the cheese perfect. Then there's a beat with a new panel, and Guy's mom asked, so you're one of those superheroes, right? I saw you on television a couple of times. Guy says, yep, that was me. Then there's another blank panel for a beat. And then Guy's mom says, there any money in that? And Guy replies, No, Mom, not really. The final p- panel has Guy's thoughts saying, "It's I've been gone from the house for more than half my life, and the only interest my mom shows is hitting me up for a loan. 
who says things don't stay the same. The scene and the panels really just capture the awkwardness of a dysfunctional, broken family. And Again, like I spoke with you guys before about how uh, my dad had problems with alcoholism, after my dad passed away, ironically, a lot of the stuff that was going on in this panel would go on when I would go up to meet my mom. We would not really interact all that much. We'd sit together and watch TV and not really talk about anything all that important. And I don't know, you know I'm, I'm not saying my life is paralleling Guy Gardner's, but I'm saying there are points in this book that kind of fit in with how I interacted with my parents. And it's not really prescient, but it's just kind of odd that these things have worked out this way. And I don't, again, it, uh, it kind of makes me wonder whether or not, you know, I focused on some of the things in this book and subconsciously related them to the way things were going on at the time in my life. So it's just an interesting little psychological tidbit that I probably shouldn't be blazing on myself because I have no psychological background at all. Page 9, panel 1, we get Militia in the plane with the quorum members telling them to uh, check for Guy around Baltimore, and surprisingly enough, that's where they find him. So it looks like Militia might have a bit of insight to why Guy would be in a certain place, which is going to basically show us that this character might have a relationship to Guy. Not really certain what kind of relationship to Guy, but he does have intimate knowledge of, you know, where Guy would be. So, that's kind of interesting. Page 10, I've been focusing on Mitch Bird's art, but I really need to reiterate that Chuck Dixon is still writing this book, and he's doing a great job with it. Especially here on page 10, let me read you the dialogue, as Guy's landing in the, uh, in Washington, D.C., in front of the uh, reflecting pool. He says, I wanted fresh air. Why did I come down here? More pork duty in, in the air here than in the Chicago stockyards in July. Well, the lights are pretty, and it's quiet. Nothing small about this place. Nothing small but my problems. It's like my life is just a series of interruptions. I'm a Green Lantern, then they take it away. Then they give it back, and they take it away again. Then I almost lose this ring. Then I'm accused of murder. I've got to get control of my life. Something's got to change. There's probably more introspection and character development in these three panels of Guy Gardner than there was in the entirety of the run of him over at the uh, JLI. So, again, kudos to Chuck Dixon for taking this very second-string character and fleshing him out a lot more. Moving ahead a bit to page 15, panel 2. Militia did something to amplify his armor or to, I guess, maybe change the properties of it that allowed it to deflect Guy's beam, causing it to split up and hit the street and a bunch of other buildings. This is one of these times when Guy mentions that the output of the ring is only light, and that's something that we really kind of forget about. Uh, You know, we see Guy can use the ring to make constructs, but even the constructs aren't physical things. It's light-based energy that's coalesced into a solid form. And 
when guy uses the ring as a sort of beam weapon, it's easily, you know, can be split like uh, a laser. So maybe there was some sort of prismatic thing that caused guy's beam energy to split that was on uh, malicious armor. It's an interesting thing that you really don't think about in the comic, you know, basically because you see them making giant scissors and fists and what have you. Page 16, panel 3, we get sort of the good and bad of uh, Bird's art here. In this first panel, we get uh, Ice from the side profile, and it's weird. She looks more grandmotherly. At first, when I saw this, I thought it was actually uh, Ice's mother, which was being dealt with in the uh, Justice League books at the time. But it's Ice, so not the best picture of it. But then in the next panel, we get a really great shot of Wonder Woman, Ice, and Fire sitting around the table at the JLI embassy just drinking coffee. And Wonder Woman really looks good. She's very curvy. She's very physically fit. Uh, She's got the 90s hair, which is fine. It's the 90s. But I really love uh, Bird's ability to do expressions. The sort of bored, uh, wistful look on Ice's face in this panel is just really great. So, again, kudos to Mitch Bird and his artwork, especially drawing females. I'm really enjoying it. It's attractive. The females are curvy. They're, I guess they're very cheesecake. But it doesn't make you feel dirty like uh, looking at Jim Balance stuff, in my opinion. So, there's something to say for that. Then on page 17, panel 3, we get these same kind of weird symbols rather than the uh, just strange language for Guy's ring kicking out. So there's that again. Then on page 20, panel 4, as uh, Militia gets hit by the semi, you get a glimpse of him as his mask is ripped. And if you've been paying attention, you might be able to figure out who Militia is from this panel. If not, you may have to wait a couple of issues to find out. And then, sadly, on page 22, we come to Guy's new look of the leather jacket, which is different from his leather jacket in the Guy Gardner series proper. His t-shirt with the stylized W on it for Warrior. His spiky, (laughs) spiky fingerless gloves. And his leather chaps. Because nothing says hero more than leather chaps. Don't go walking around San Francisco with those on, guy. But that does it for the issue. Uh, Let's go ahead and do what we always do at this time and take a look at some of the 1990s ads and see what kind of fun stuff they have for sale this time. On the front inside cover, we get an ad for Clay Fighter. I know I talked this a couple issues back with Michael Bradley. It's essentially... A side-scroller Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter-type game with very cartoony animated figures in the place of, you know, characters like Ryu and Ken or in Mortal Kombat, Sub-Zero and Scorpion and all that. A fun game, well-remembered, but unfortunately I don't think I played it at the time. A few pages in, we get another throwaway game that just happened to slap Mario on the cover, It's uh, Mario's Time Machine, which seems to be a sort of educational-type game. And 
you know in the 90s, if it's an educational game, it's probably crap. Probably slapping Mario on the cover or putting him in the game was the only way this game was possibly going to be sold to kids at the time. Next page, we could de-add that we did before about Lost Dimension, the first real 3D game that you have to have the glasses for, and I'm certain was very, very awful. And again, nothing really new in the book. We've got the best of the best karate, which is the karate training game. Covered that before. But the next page gives us a stylized look at the game Asterix the Gaul, where Asterix and Obelix, the uh, barbarians drawn by... Hold on, let me see if I can get their name right. Uh, who is it? Rene Goschini and Albert Uderzo? I'm horrible with this. But there are a couple of French uh, comic book creators, and it's a really popular comic in Europe. Uh, I think it's been translated over here in America, and I guess it's one of those things where they tried to get a game to try and get a catch to catch on, and I'm not really certain how well it did. Again, this is one of these games that I don't think I covered, or I don't think that I actually played during the time. But it looks like your typical side-scroller platform where you play Asterix and you get to beat the crap out of people. So, what's not to like about that? And then a few pages in, if you didn't know that Neil Gaiman was popular during the 90s, you would now because there was actually a batch of Sandman trading cards. Yes. Not only are they running out of cards for the superheroes, so they're deciding to go to the Vertigo heroes. And, you know, it's good artwork. Uh, uh, they have, what here, it's a 90-card set with uh, dramatic oversights cards that don't fit in the standard six-pocket... Well, that do fit in the standard six-pocket pages that are UV-coded. Ooh. They've got uh, seven randomly inserted uh, limited portraits of the Endless Gallery, and a live-action 3D stereo hologram of the Sandman. So, Sandman cards, that's that's really kind of unexpected. But I guess once you mine all the other properties, you know, gotta sell what you gotta sell. The American Comics and Entertainment ad uh, has Asbats and his full gold and blue, very Cylon-like uh, bat uniform up there is as the primary uh, piece of artwork there, with uh, looking like a, a reduction in the price of comics. I'm thinking right about now, the uh, speculator market may be starting to hit its bust, and uh, we're getting the hot comics now with a bunch of uh, ads saying that the prices are slashed. And looking here, looking through here, I'm not seeing any ridiculously priced ones. Well, I guess they still have some of the uh, Valiant comics, like Rye going for $75, and uh, the gold cover of Dr. Mirage going for 50 But other than that, a lot of the prices have come down a bit. I'm seeing a lot of $2 ones. Uh, Solar, number 10, at $75, but Prices are starting to come down, so the speculator market might be hitting its uh, apex here. Then a few pages in, we get the house ad saying, As a Green Lantern, Hal Jordan possessed the most powerful weapon in the universe. Now he wants more. And we get this uh, weird armored Hal Jordan saying Emerald Twilight, I'm sorry, Emerald Twilight in Green Lantern number 50. 
on sale in January 1984. And uh, as you know, we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 50 here in a couple of weeks, and it also says an era ends here. And like I said, we've got Hal in a really unusual-looking armor, and it looks like he's flying out of the uh, central battery, and the battery's exploding. So we'll see what that has to mean for the character here in a couple of weeks. The next page has another house ad with lightning strikes again. It's Power of the Shazam with a fully painted hardcover. It's a fully painted hardcover by Jerry Ordway. And I've heard people talk about the Power of Shazam book, really praising it bringing, for bringing the character back in there. And Ordway's art is always really great, so definitely something to pick up. The Guy Talk page has the typical letters uh, to uh, Guy Gardner, but the one thing that I want to point out that it does sport is the cover to uh, next issue, which brings us Guy's new armor. And if you've seen his outfit for this issue and you think that was goofy, just wait until you see Guy's armor for next issue. Wow. The back inside cover brings us an ad for the... Uh, I not certain. I guess it's for the all. It's for all systems. It's for Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, and the Super Nintendo. It's Arnold, not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Get them mixed up. It's Sylvester Stallone hanging from a side of a cliff, thinking to himself, "I hope they don't hit my jeep." As you see these little lines and leading up to word balloons of people screaming, "Ah!" It's the ad for the cliffhanger video game, which. Again, looks like the typical side-scroller sort of Contra game where I guess you play as Sylvester Stallone and you climb mountains. I guess that's fun. And finally, the back outside cover is Kick Some Liquid Metal Butt with a scene directly out of the uh, James Cameron Terminator 2 movie near the final sequence where Linda Hamilton is in the smelting factory and she's just launched a grenade into the T-1000 and you get the sort of exploded, creepy thing-like version of him where his head's hanging off the cybernetic body and it's all weird and mutated. And it's an ad for the uh, Terminator 2 game for the Genesis Game Gear and the uh, Super Nintendo. Now, Unlike the Terminator 2 shooter game, I think this is more of an action-adventure side-scroller platforming game. There may be parts in it where you do uh, first-person shooter stuff, but it looks like it's more of a uh, platformer here. Um, So, I guess you could go and shoot up Terminators and be like, you know, John Connor and eventually, you know, do a lot of drugs. I don't know. Anyhow, that ends the coverage of Guy Gardner. Uh, Guy Gardner, unfortunately, has not been collected in trade in any way, shape, or form, but the Hal Jordan issue, or the Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern issue, definitely has. Uh, It's been collected in a couple of places, namely the Green Lantern Emerald Twilight trade paperback and the Green Lantern Emerald Twilight New Dawn trade paperback. So, if you're wanting to go pick those up, uh, definitely go do that. It's a good read. And you can also, I think, pick them up on Comixology. I think they've uh, reprinted all those in digital format. So, a couple places you can go find this if you're not willing to go and uh, hunt them down in your back issue bins at your comic book shop. But that does it for the episode today. I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time out to listen to the show. 
And I hope that you will come back uh, next week where we find out how Hal is going to handle all this thing with not being able to resurrect Co-City and see if he takes it in a good way or takes it badly. Chances are it's the latter. But anyway, thank you guys for listening and downloading and come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. We'll see you then. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know all feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spell L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting them. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave me a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening. And come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show is These Days by the Foo Fighters off their album Wasting Light. Again, as always, if you want to buy the song, and it's an awesome song and an awesome album, definitely go out and check it out. I suggest you go to Amazon.com through the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Go ahead and head over to Two True Freaks, click on the banner at the top of the page, and you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can purchase the album, purchase the song, or buy the CD. And while you're there, be sure to browse around Amazon.com. They've got pretty much anything you could ever want with reasonable shipping prices and really good prices on their items. But if you do plan on buying at Amazon.com, be certain to use the link at twotruefreaks.lipson.com to make sure that Chris and Scott, and now Andrew Leyland, get a little of that sweet, sweet kickback money. And by a little, I mean very little.